Steve, let me ask you a personal question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> do, you have, do you have a mother, Steve? I do indeed. Fantastic. Don't we all? <laughs> yeah, well, yes, we all do, but I'm sure you're a good son and you love your mother, don't you, Steve? Uh, uh, the best. I'm like legendary. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Very good. Well, I got a tip for you. You can really win Mother's Day. Win your mother over on Mother's Day. Cement your reputation as this really good son. Give your mom an Aura digital picture frame. Have you heard of these things, Steve? Yes, I have. They're loaded up with decades of photos. You can just like hook them up to the phone and then you get the photos running through it, kind of scrolling through it. You seen these things? Yeah, they're great. They're really cool. Yeah, and you can get everything. Uh, and Pictures of your mom, pictures of whoever, your family, your brothers, all, all these things. They're a wonderful item. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code word ChinwagPod at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This is Paul Giamatti speaking. And this is Stephen Asma. And this episode of Chinwag is sponsored by BetterHelp. It is indeed, Steve. Let me ask you a blunt question. Do you ever feel stuck, Steve? <laughs> I'm serious. Do you ever feel kind of stuck in the mud? Every day, my friend. Yeah. Every damn day. And then what happens is you get overwhelmed because you're kind of stuck, right? True. As I get older, and I am getting older, folks, I may not look it. You may <laughs> think, oh, he's like Dorian Gray. He's going backwards. Yeah, wow. Wow, he's, he's, he's going backwards. I am getting older, folks. It's hard to believe. The thing I notice is how important it is to maintain a balance. You know, I guess you'd call it work-life balance. I don't think I'm alone here, but therapy's helped me do this, this balance. It can help you find equilibrium. It can help you feel more empowered in the decisions you make, the boundaries and priorities you set. It's good in that way. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give better help a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. And all you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Sometimes that's hard, right, to find the right person. So this helps. You can change. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with better help. Visit betterhelp.com slash chinwag today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash chinwag. Three, two, one, blast off, Steve. <laughs> Welcome to Chinwag. Blast off to Chinwag. Blast off. <laughs> That's that has some connotations that I am not entirely happy with. Blast really? off to Chinwag. Yeah, let's just say oh. that it is going to be a psychedelic type show. So that's yes. what we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about thing. here. Oh, wow. I didn't even think of that. Holy cow. <laughs> boy, oh boy. Yes, no, I'm talking purely Age of Aquarius blast off. Time to enlightenment blast yes, off. Yes, enlightenment, Nirvana, lift off to Nirvana. Today on Chinwag, I am your host, Paul Giamatti, joined by my co-host... Stephen Asma, who has yes. uh, blasted off on psychedelics on a oh. number of occasions. Yes. Wow, we're going um, right to that. We're yes. going straight to that, I, I just straight wanna, to the backstory. <laughs> I, I want to establish <laughs> that a lot of times there's some malarkey. There's some malarkey on this show, but not mm -hmm. today. 
I know what oh. I'm talking about. <laughs> is this straight talking today? Is that what today's episode is, Steve? <laughs> That's today, right. just right from the shoulder today? All right. I like that. <laughs> Very good. We're not fucking around today on the Chinwag. It's true. And uh, it is, it's a little bit of opening up uh, about our, our past uh, usage of, uh, of uh, mind-altering substances. And tanks, uh, sensory deprivation tanks. Indeed, because we will be speaking with Dr. Uh, Matthew Johnson, Yes. Who is an extremely interesting guy down there at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, uh, doing a lot of work with psychedelics in terms of therapy and things like that. But before we get there, we just need to run over the classic yes, litany. Encourage of our, our, our needs. Uh, our yeah. needs, yes. We know that there's some weirdos out there uh, who want to get over to Apple and give us good reviews. That's right. And send letters and comments. Yes, yes. And send things into us because yeah. it's been really great to get comments and emails. We have been reading those for yeah. an episode and, and addressing them because there's lots of really amazing stuff. If we have some very smart fans. We really um, do. Despite all of us being weirdos. Well, and despite the two of us being morons who are doing the show. <laughs> right, that's right. <laughs> We're no. totally outclassed by no, our fans. I, it's true, actually. <laughs> no, I just, I, I, I'm i a moron, you're not. You're a, uh, <laughs> well, I... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. no. Uh, but anyway, today is very exciting. Today is very amazing. Today is a really super interesting conversation. Yeah, this guy is great. He's doing a lot of work uh, in psychedelics and the use of of psychedelics to treat depression, addiction, cancer, distress, trauma, PTSD, all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, he got uh, the first federal grant in over 50 years to directly study the therapeutic uses of psychedelics. So it's a Amazing. huge, huge achievement in the field of psychedelics. Yeah, he's really, he's at the forefront. He's the, he's what they call tip of spear. Have you heard this phrase? Tip of yes. spear. He's tip of spear He's totally uh, tip in of the spear. drive to uh, investigate the use of these things for human betterment. He's a super knowledgeable, super lovely guy. Uh, I like to call him Agent Spooky Blue. That's what I'm calling him from now <laughs> yes, on. Yes, because of his lighting. Agent Spooky Blue, his lighting was a little crazy when we talked to him. Sit back, relax, close your eyes. Smoke uh, a little something if you have it. <laughs> oh, and then we're doing that too. We're encouraging people. We're just banging a little. Okay, fantastic. We've yeah, yeah. That that's it. Nothing, uh, nothing too strong. And uh, enjoy the intellectual, emotional, psychedelic stylings of our guest, Doctor Matthew Johnson. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Chinwag. Please feel free to call me Matt. Or Spooky Blue. Spooky Blue, okay. (laughs) That's even better. (laughs) All right, Spooky Blue. I kind of picture everybody in your lab being kind of hip. I don't know if that's right or I'm stereotyping, but it is a psychedelics lab at Johns Hopkins, right? It's a it's a mix, you know. I'm probably the least hip of everybody. But uh, you know, it's a mix of like nerd, hip combination. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I'm so curious, even like what you do trials with people where you're sort of working with, I mean, for so many things, um, addiction and things like this as well. Right. As, uh, and, but what is, what is a trial like when you're working with somebody to see the effects of uh, psilocybin, for instance, and, and as a therapeutic method for like, what's the actual process? What is the trial like? Yeah. So first step is screening. There's an, kind of about two half days of a physical, uh-huh. a psychiatric screening, screening things out like schizophrenia, informed consent, making sure they know their rights as a participant and what the studies, everything that they can expect about being in the study. And then if someone agrees to go on and, you know, they're not excluded for some reason, safety factor, or if it doesn't fit the the nature of the study, one of our exclusion factors, then we move on to what's called a preparation phase. And it depends on the, the particular study, but anywhere from four to eight hours across several meetings of preparing them. And that involves one Probably the most important thing is building rapport with the people who will be in the session room with them during the psychedelic mm-hmm. session because people mm-hmm. can to speak plainly, freak out. And, and that sometimes happens in the wild. Someone's at a concert and they're around a bunch of strangers. <laughs> sure, and, in the wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is, and, um, and, and so they got to you know build that rapport and get to know the person, who they are as a human being. And hopefully and the goal is for them to come to trust those people who are in the, the guides. Often we, we use that term, but it's a therapeutic-like role, whether it's a nominal therapist in one of the therapeutic studies or someone, you know, serving as a guide. You know, I also do studies with so-called healthy normals, which is, you know, scientific speak for someone that doesn't meet the criteria for a disorder, but we're all humans and uh, we all have our issues, (laughs) whether it's diagnosable or not. And I've never um, heard that healthy normal. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really kind of one of those weird, I always remind myself to tell people because you just get used to using your own lingo and Mm -hmm. But yeah, healthy normal, whether it's a healthy normal uh-huh. or a patient, those persons uh-huh. are, are playing, the guides are, are, or therapists are playing a, a very therapeutic-like role in just preparing them for what the psychedelic session may be like, including some heavy stuff like, oh, you can feel like you're going to die. Sometimes that happens. And this is a hefty <laughs> dose. Yeah. And I, yeah. one of the things I often tell people is I've had multiple vets in previous studies that have said, oh, this has replaced combat as the most intense experience I've been through, which is, is that right? so really? heavy. I've never been through combat, thankfully. And so it humbles wow. me to get that feedback. Wow. And so many yeah. people will describe the effects of a high-dose psychedelic as ineffable, meaning it's beyond words. Beyond and so yeah. in the spirit of informed consent, it's really important to like, okay, just do as best you can yeah. to inform the person, including telling them, hey, Often people come back and say, no matter how hard you tried, you could never fully describe what this would be like. So you at least yes. tell them that, <laughs> you know, that you're going <laughs> right. into something that you may not down wow. the road have really anticipated. Yeah. And and after that preparation period, then it comes session day. And then they, they show up at 8 a.m. They've had a light breakfast at home. Uh, <laughs> you have some light discussion, make sure they're doing okay. Nothing crazy has happened in their life. That would be a problem. And uh few questionnaires. We're obsessed with questionnaires in science, particularly, you know, but keep it to a minimum sure. on that morning, uh-huh. you know, like maybe just a five minutes of answering how they're feeling and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, and then they take the a capsule, which contains the psilocybin. I've, I've worked with some different psychedelics, but mainly psilocybin, which is the agent in yes. so-called magic mushrooms. Yes. And the effects will come on anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour. It, it and varies. you give them a significant dose. You give them a significant enough dose. This is not a micro It's not micro dose. Not right? only is this, that's a great question. <laughs> not only, because that's such a sexy topic now. Not only yeah, is it not yes. a micro dose, 
It's yes. well beyond what most people want to take it's as a heroic dose. dose. It's the is heroic it what they call, dose. Is it what they call the heroic dose? Well, <laughs> I, I certainly have. I've done my homework in ways that I haven't in a long time done my homework, but I used to do my homework quite a bit. And so I know that the, the heroic dosage thing is is a, a concept. You know, it's it's a significant. A significant yeah, that's the only way we used to dose back in the day. That like, you know, when I was young in high school yeah. and college, that was yeah. the dosage. It you was this quite kind a bit of, of it. Catastrophic thing. So, but anyway, go on. Yes, please. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So it is, and we prepare people, of course, for this. In terms of functioning in the world, it's an overwhelming dose. In fact, yeah. if you're if you're at Burning Man, and I actually I've helped people in the bad trip tent at Burning Man actually early in my training just to kind of get really? up to speed with this yeah, stuff. Yeah, back absolutely. in 2005 or so. If you're at Burning Man and take this, you, you, you probably end up wanting just crawling into your tent and zipping up and hunkering down. Mm. I mean, it is, really is. Uh, <laughs> that. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's it's common for folks to get you know, something like an eighth ounce of mushrooms, dried mushrooms, mm-hmm. Salasby cubensis mushrooms, the main type in the illicit market. And um, splitting that two or three ways amongst friends, and that's well beyond a microdose, but... This on that, and there's variation, just like variation in vitamin C and sugar and oranges. There's variation in potency, but on average, uh-huh. um, this dose is somewhere um, in terms of milligrams. It's 30 milligrams or so of, of 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 pure psilocybin. It's right in between an eighth ounce and a quarter ounce. Not split wow. between people, but that's, one person. Wow, that's a lot. It is wow. a very large dose. That's a lot. And I've done yeah. some studies with not just healthy normals, but with I call them the connoisseur studies, where these are more basic research questions with novel compounds, where, you know, what the connoisseur is, is at the end, like, oh, yeah, that was like the time I took 2CB and I smoked some DMT at the peak. It was a little like that, you know, the connoisseur. <laughs> yes. And so even- I was going to ask, do you look for people often, I'm sorry, I keep interrupting oh, please. you, but it's like, do you look for people who have not experienced this ever before? Do you want to get a kind of tabula rasa, so to speak, a clean slate of a person? Or, and, or as you say, you do the connoisseur one where you want to sort of gauge it up for somebody that has done a lot. It's run the gambit. You know, so some like the therapeutic studies where we're looking to treat, you know, addiction, depression, cancer-related distress, mm-hmm. et cetera. It, you typically want someone someone with no experience or sort of like an average, and, and studies differ, but something like, well, you can't have used more than 10 or times in your lifetime, mm-hmm. and it can't be within the last year. And so it, kind of a typical thing is someone will say, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I took it once or twice in college. 20 years ago yeah. or 10 years, right. you know, what have you. Yeah. And it's, you know, a big part of the population. So I think it's, you know, that yeah. or either never use, which is also a big part of the population. That's yeah. what we look for in the therapeutic studies. But again, there's uh-huh. some of these more basic science studies. So I've done work with some more novel psychedelics like salvinorin A, which is in salvia divinorum, the smokable herb, oh. which is a really intense uh-huh. thing. So for that study and did some work with dexamethorphan, which is a ketamine-like drug that's actually in cough syrup. Kids will say robo tripping. So I've done high dose work with that. And that's very much, (laughs) that's a very Uh real, it's a very psychedelic type experience. So for those studies, in terms of kind of just learning what the effects are like, to inform both the good, the bad, and the ugly, everything about it, those we want the connoisseur, someone who's used at least, and it depends again on the study, but at least so many times, you know, 10 times in their life to have some of that background. You you don't want, you also don't want to, uh, overwhelm some, especially if you're going to very high doses with a novel compound, yeah. you kind of want to start safer if someone has some background yes. in experiencing yes. these right. things. Sure. And so well, the person takes this thing and then 
they're with somebody who monitors. Right. For how many hours, out of curiosity? So about, and psilocybin work five to six hours. So people will start to come down, and there's variation, of course, but three in the afternoon, four, they're kind of on the descending mm -hmm. limb, starting to feel mm -hmm. back to normal. But during that whole day, 90% of it, they're laying on a couch. And the framework for all of the studies, essentially, is an introspective framework. There's some light talk, and, and when you're waiting for the come up, there's some art mm. books and you know chat with them. They're not they're not checking their phone and like whatever. Yeah. All that is mm -hmm. in the safe in the other room, along with their <laughs> shoes and you right. got a pair of slippers. It's like you're here for the day. You're untethered uh, from the external great. world. Yeah. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> it really is like a Paul spa wants day. to sign up. Uh, it sounds great. It's uh, yeah. It sounds fantastic. When it it, it starts, uh, the effects they say, oh, I'm I'm feeling a little funny, and it's like okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> then we invite them to lay down. So they're sitting up like on the couch at this point, And we put on eye shades, which has a better con uh, connotation than um, blindfold. <laughs> yeah, eye shades <laughs> sounds kidnapped. better. You yeah, eye shades right. is like a nice We smooth. shackle them to the bed and then we, yeah, only, yeah. yeah. And, and, interesting. You put on an eye shade. That's interesting. Why yeah, is that? So, you know, that's a technique that goes back to the to the early 60s and even 1950s and the earliest researchers exploring so the, work the with The CIA LSD. doing that? Or so the <laughs> CIA was doing all kinds of wild stuff, not that. But Cary Grant was doing it in the 50s and 60s. Ex like he was, exactly. He did like 100 trips or something. Aldous Huxley and all those so they would put the, the right. shades on them, you think? Yeah, and a lot of those, there was variation, of course. Actually, what psychedelic therapy proper really means is this one particular model of using psychedelics with a, a very an overwhelming heroic dose with an introspective framework with eye shades and listening to music. And there was another model more popular in Europe using more of a moderate dose, uh, like about 100 micrograms of LSD, um, sort of a full psychedelic dose, but not overwhelming. The high dose of psilocybin I described is, would sort of be equivalent to about the intensity of, of about 250 or 300 micrograms of LSD. That was sort of the orange sunshine level from back in, mm -hmm. you know, the, the Owsley, you know, sort of doses uh -huh. that were going the around. Classic sort of, yeah, right. And, and today the average dose of acid on the street is about 50 milli micrograms Huge mistake I just made. Not milligrams, micrograms. That's, okay. Yeah. Wow. I was like, wow. Yeah, that <laughs> That's would, heroic indeed. Okay, that listeners. would get an elephant <laughs> off. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, totally. But but that was called psycholytic with more where the person could talk to a therapist during the experience and would open them up. But the, the right. one, the model that's really taken off is the psychedelic therapy, which is therapists learned early on, oh, uh, they tried talking during the therapy, but they realized, uh, they don't want to talk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, on both sides. I mean, one, it's like language can just be very difficult. Yeah, and, you've, and on the therapist side, therapists, including a, a, a really kind of revered early therapist who actually continued to do underground work named Leo Zeff. Um, he's passed a, a, away now. But that you know, even the most gifted therapist, you know, you think you're the therapist. Yeah. I've gotten inside of this person's mind and I'm going to tinker around and like. <laughs> Whatever you say, you know, it's like, check your ego. <laughs> it's like, happen. there's something that seems to happen in the person's mind. We have a lot to figure out in science about how this works, but whether it's the defense mechanisms being lowered, this kind of very different way of experiencing themselves, but it seems that works best at the high doses of you prepare the person, make sure they're feeling safe, be there to support them if they need uh -huh. help and to remind if they have a, a bad trip or challenging experience, which uh -huh. comes with the territory, about a third of the people uh -huh. on this dose will have at least some period of that. 
And the really bad thing is if they freak out and go and run across the highway naked, which sometimes happens in the wild. That's but, but rest in the wild. They not can't in your get lab, out, though. But you've got <laughs> them shackled to the bed, so they can't and blindfolded. We miss the shackle. We we skip the shackles, but we do. But they're 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 monitored. They got yes, people importantly right. that they, but can, they can't. They care. Safe. You know, we care for their yeah, well being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so it's more challenging. You know, not necessarily. But what do you bad. say? Like, let's say somebody does start to have a bad trip in the model that you're describing. What are the kinds of things that you guys say or do to yeah. try to calm them down? Are there like it's, touch it's difficult. things? It's what, very yeah, difficult. What are you doing? Right, Paul, it's very difficult. The most important thing is it's less about the what exactly you say. <laughs> and here, I mean, it's going to sound a little like, you know, no, hippie. It's kind of more of the vibe of how. I get it. Oh, I get it. Absolutely. You know, one of the most powerful things is holding their hand and yeah. or the shoulder. I think it's important clinically because you can, with the boundaries lowered, and as we're moving into clinical models, like there can be sexual abuse and things like that. So I think it's uh, important to mm-hmm. prepare the and, and like what are the limits of that touch? But just sure. holding someone's hand can be such a mm-hmm. powerful thing, and you prepare them for that. Like, hey. If you start to have trouble, we'll hold your hand. I say, it's like, you know, if we're helping each other, we're buddies climbing up a mountain and I'm helping you mm-hmm. up, you know, it's like we grab onto yeah. it. It's the same thing mm-hmm. here. It's human on yeah. human. We're helping each other out. And right. so physical touch and a reminder that I'm with you. I'm not leaving you. You're not yeah. alone. You're perfectly safe. It's it's normal to feel this way. I mean, whether you feel like you're going to die or you're going to permanently go crazy. Sometimes people, have, that's kind of the toughest one to deal with when they think they're never going to come back. That is pretty rare, I think, because of the good preparation, but sometimes yeah. it comes up, but you remind them that you're not leaving them yeah. alone. Amazing. Even, they're going to yeah. come back. You know, yeah. Right. And there's, It's going to end. It's going gonna, it's gonna to stop at some point. Exactly. And that yeah. was the very next thing yeah. I was going to say. Now, even that, there's an art form to that because sometimes you could say, oh, you know, don't worry. You got two hours left. <laughs> And in someone's experience or an hour, it's like every second is an eternity. And you're like, my God. No, I know. Yes, I remember. I remember sometimes feeling like this isn't going to stop. And it's like, yeah. And even if it was going well, the feeling it wasn't going to stop could could panic you. That it was like, but this might never end. And that's scary. Right. I mean, people subjectively feel that they've stepped outside of time. And yes. in, in some right. case, like it's just almost an irrelevant concept. Yes. And so there's just a real art form to to really listening to the person. Sometimes they say, Amazing. if they're done, they're like, I don't want any excuse, nothing. You don't understand. You don't understand. And then it's just, you're with them. It's like, I'm not leaving you. And it's kind of the vibe. One of the things is don't freak out yourself. Yeah. It, it, you know, like, oh, what do we do yeah. here? And then, ooh. You know, you have that, the that, can, that can be communicated sort of non-verbally to the person, Easily. almost like dogs and cats can read bodies and stress, Easily, you know, sure. so they'll pick up on it, right? Absolutely. No, yeah. That's a great example. And you're in this heightened state, so your ability to probably pick up on something abnormal in somebody else's behavior is probably heightened. Absolutely. Yeah. That's very much yeah, the so case. Like, They're in a very suggestible and a hypervigilant uh, state oftentimes. What's the thinking behind that? Yeah, and the other thing besides the eye shades is the headphones. The like music. We, we yeah, put yeah, them yeah, on, the music. And, and they're not playing. But, but it's music, You, but you use music. You don't silence anything, do you? Do you? No, no, no. And, and, okay. and that's, It's not all the Grateful Dead, is it? It's not the Grateful Dead, it, It's is it? not. Um, although <laughs> do you get to pick what you want to listen work. to? Um, 
We've done or a do little bit of that. you curate what they listen to? Because you're like, you're not listening to Iron Maiden in there. You're going to listen to something mellow. So I've, I've used that example. I think Iron Maiden would work well for me. I'm a big Maiden fan. Um, one of my all-time favorite bands. So even Fantastic. that, I think there's more research we need to do for the right person. Yeah. I think the right Iron Maiden piece could act, yeah. seriously, could actually yeah. really yeah. Yeah. take sure. them to the next level. I mean, it could take me I places with nothing in my system. Yes. So, it, you know, it depends. But we don't have them playing DJ in real time. So it's typically a completely set program, typically um, uh, classical music, although some lighter music, some Beatles and things like that at the end, some Louis Armstrong at the very end, emotionally uh, evocative, Samuel uh, Barber's Adagio for Strings, you know, the oh, song God. from Platoon, his folks might yeah, know it. You know, oh, wow. Some Jesus. really deep, <laughs> heavy. you know, some Bach yeah. and things like this. Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Typically starting from a, you know, more of a gentle, like, you know, you know, classical guitar and flute, this type of thing, into these more evocative pieces and then sustaining that and then getting more gentle again at the end. But I've also done, I did one study I published comparing different genres. And for that, we actually even stepped outside of what you could, depending on your definition, call even called music, but more kind of sound, complex harmonics, like so basic gongs, didgeridoos, uh, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. singing bowls, uh, human mm -hmm. throat. Meditative singing. type stuff. Yeah, meditative yeah. stuff. Yeah, and the, that's um, amazing. Kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And actually, it was a very small study, so we didn't have a whole lot of statistical power, but we actually found a little bit of a trend for that stuff that worked even a little better. Um, that makes sense. So at least it yeah. seemed like it could work just as well. And then also, I did a little one study where we allowed the person to pre select their own music about a half hour, uh -huh. an hour's worth, not in real time, because I think that's one of the overall goals is to have them let go of their discursive mind. You right. know, try not to overanalyze things. You're not the decision uh -huh. maker. Your job uh -huh. is to absorb into this. And so they're not playing DJ. But I did do a study where they selected beforehand uh, about an hour's worth of music that they could play that was meaningful to them. And and and, and that um, we may actually still do some analysis and publish that. It was it was very small, but it was but typically it's pre-selected. But the point of the both the eye shades and and the music through headphones is sort of to encourage this introspective state to absorb into the experience. The eye shades specifically, in one sense, are are to encourage them to kind of focus on the inner experience mm -hmm. and sort of not to get stuck in a way on the really interesting visual and perceptual effects. And not everyone has this even at a high dose, but you know, as you might know, the walls could be waving. Colors yeah. could be vibrate. You know, mm -hmm. you could get some synesthesia. And there'll be some opportunity. It's five, six hours. They're going to need to get up and take a pee. So, you know, those are usually the opportunities that take a few minutes before they go back down into the cocoon, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, there's some nice artwork and everything. It's a pleasant environment. So they can look at the art and kind of discuss. But mm -hmm. there were mm -hmm. some Jungian therapists back in the 1960s, masters in Houston. Not to be confused with the sex researchers, masters in Johnson, although that say, would be yeah. an interesting <laughs> combo. Sure, uh, absolutely. As well. But they described sort of these layers of experience. And I think just descriptively, it makes sense. Like the, there is the perceptual layer, which can be absolutely fascinating, but mm -hmm. there's also other layers, like one's personal kind of by analogy, the deeper you go into the psyche, another layer would be kind of the personal psychological level, you know, thoughts and feelings about your, your family of origin, the roles you mm -hmm. play in life, your loved ones. Then below that kind of deeply symbolic experiences, thoughts about, the nature of reality, perhaps, mm -hmm. um, and and depending on someone's how they describe these things, perhaps you could call it archetypal type experiences. And then 
even below that, you have what they called the, the integral mystical level. Have you ever wondered why we call French fries French fries? Or why something is the greatest thing since sliced bread? There are answers to those questions. Everything Everywhere Daily is a podcast for curious people who want to learn more about the world around them. Every day, you'll learn something new about things you never knew you didn't know. Subjects include history, science, geography, mathematics, and culture. If you're a curious person and want to learn more about the world you live in, just subscribe to Everything Everywhere Daily wherever you cast your pod. I'm really interested in this idea of the archetypes, and Paul and I have talked about this many times. A lot, yeah. I, I think we're both fans of Carl Jung from a distance. We're not like hardcore Jungians or anything, but I wanted to ask you if there's some empirical evidence that you're you're starting to see like clear patterns emerge. I've done LSD a few times and and mushrooms a few times, and I felt like I had that kind of unitive feeling of like a cosmic, oceanic, I'm one mm -hmm. with everything. Yes. But I wondered, I've also heard people say there's a common sense in which they can they envision the self breaking apart and then like being recomposed and you might see images like circles and Mandolins matrices. And yeah, like mandalas. Yeah, matrices. Do you get, are yeah. you getting like real information on this? Like where people are, are finding the same kind of imagery or is it more personalized than that? It's, it's it's so personalized that it's really okay. hard. Like, mm. and who knows what's possible in the future? Um, uh, but in terms of like using these experiences to kind of prove the archetypal framework, no, right. we're not there mm -hmm. yet. It's a hard thing to prove. There's certain things like you know, young even like primates will be afraid of snakes. There's probably something us primates, including right. us, are. Um, we're kind of hardwired. Our ancestors that weren't afraid of saints and said, oh, what's that's a pretty stick and they pick it up right. and they're dead and they right. don't produce yeah. children. Yeah. So right. it's a natural selection. <laughs> At that level, there's, if right. you could consider that an archetype, which I, I think, yeah, I mean, there's certain things like, you know, even infants are afraid of edges, like falling off yeah. a cliff. Like right. again, natural right. selection, the kids huh. that yeah. weren't, yeah. You know, they, they didn't make the- <laughs> They didn't procreate. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> no, so yeah. it's it's tough, but there are certainly at that mystical level, that that sense of, of all this one, it's expressed in different ways, whether you feel at one with all of humanity, whether it's more the metaphysical level, you feel like you're one with the entire universe, or if you're religiously inclined, uh, you know, one with God, that is a, a common feature at mm -hmm. actually about two thirds of folks have something like that at the mm -hmm. high dose. And wow. we find correlations between the degree to which you have that type of experience and whether you're less depressed, less anxious, doing better and recovering from addiction. Wow. Beforehand. Months later. Oh, oh months, months later. later. Wow. Afterwards. Right. So if okay. we assess these things by questionnaire at the end of the day when the drug is worn off, but before they go home, which we're very gentle with because that could be rough at the end of the day. Sure. Yeah. But, <laughs> like, come on, another question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. No, totally. Can, check walls. these boxes. I can't even, <laughs> the pencil, I can't even hold it. And, and sometimes indeed it's like, uh, and then you realize after a couple of minutes, yeah. like, uh, why don't you lay back down and we'll revisit this yeah. and like you realize oh, it's still going on a bit because there's obviously variation. But, it, but, it, but it, you see that it can have a it can have a lasting effect. Right, right. And, and, and people that have those very, very deep experiences that you could you, know, you could call mystical, transpersonal, transcendental. There's lots of names from different uh -huh. traditions to describe these types of subjective experiences. It does seem that. It's not exclusive. It doesn't mean if you don't have that type yeah. of experience, you're not helped. Yeah, and it doesn't mean yeah. that if you have that type of experience, you're you're going to be less depressed. But there is, uh, and less, you know, using an addictive substance, et cetera. But there is that correlation. 
on average, you, you know, you, yeah. that's where you place your bets. And therefore, these are the conditions under which with the eye shades, um, uh-huh. et cetera, uh-huh. seem to, through clinical observation and, and, you know, going back to the 1950s, it seems like those are the conditions that under which you're most likely to get those very, very deep experiences. Interesting. So that's the goal. That's the goal. I was going to say that's right. Right. That, you, that unitive, unconditioned, whatever you know, transcendental. It's not like Euf- to a see euphoric thing, a kind of eu- euphoric feeling, a good a loss of the ego, right? The- yeah, and it, it it's interesting. I'm a little hesitant to say whether that's the goal or not because you also scientifically you, you don't want to dictate what the what ex- I hear you experience you're expecting, but mm-hmm. you you want to set the conditions under which very meaningful and profound experiences happen, which happen to end up being ones of that type. But it does seem that, and getting back to the eye shades, that if if they were just focused on the, the awesome colors and that type of thing, <laughs> you might sort of get stuck there in a sense. Like you don't have the opportunity uh, to go deeper. And people have a different propensity to which they are susceptible to those things. Even if you don't have a, a psychedelic in your system, people differ. You know, you close your eyes, and I say, say, what's in your mind's eye? Some people say, what do you mean? There's blackness, like there's nothing. You know, we all vary, but like, you know, there's an entire world going on and they're just in, within mm-hmm. your imagination. And so in a sense, it's like that on rocket boosters, the mind's eye on rocket boosters. That's one way I, I like to put it. It seems like that yeah. kind of inner experience can be, and, and including thoughts and feelings about yourself, the nature of reality, relationships in your life. And you're just looking, yeah. we know from the neuroscience that the brain is just, doing wildly different things. There's communication patterns that normally aren't there. The patterns of of synchronization across the brain are wildly different. You have less coordination or synchronization from certain sort of networks in the brain that normally are communicating quite a lot. But then there's other more global patterns where, you know, different parts of the brain are kind of compartmentalized. This part does its thing. This part does its thing. You see a correlation about Hmm. what's, you know, they move and groove together. Like crosstalk between these parts that ordinarily that normally be. don't talk to each other, right? So, which may go along with both the synesthesia, but perhaps more importantly, clinically, the the insights and the novel perspective uh-huh. taking. They're like, oh, uh-huh. this is why I do that. Like, why don't I normally see that? Or, or, and often, it's not necessarily insights or something like that, but it's stuff that they've told themselves before that they cognitively have said, oh, oh I know this is an issue for me, or like with cancer, like, oh. I can still get out there and enjoy life. You know, I'm not dead yet. And, but right. nonetheless, the suffering is very much of your own creation that like, uh-huh. it's my focus on the cancer and everything that's allowed sure. me to, like, it could even be most of the suffering or like with cigarette smoking that like- And I, I was going to say, and this is a way of dealing with addiction and things like that too, because it's, that's fascinating. So yes. it's a kind of integration of these things in your head can allow you to, to observe behavior differently and say, ah, why am I doing this? Right. Why am I so, uh-huh. And sometimes the answers are, again, like not necessarily novel. Sometimes they are, but sometimes like they've told themselves a mil- this a million times, like, oh, I can uh-huh. quit smoking. It's really a decision. But now they feel it in their heart uh-huh. so deeply. It's That's in their so bones. Like I had one participant said, like, my God, I can I can just decide to quit smoking. Like, right. I, right. like, like flicking off right. an insect. And, and it, I call these duh experiences because even when they, you know, talk about it later, like, I know that, that sounds stupid. Do you say that to them, doctor? Do you just say that to them? Do you, is that, do you just say that to them? <laughs> like, duh, dude. Like, 
maybe depending um, on what we've talked no, about, then they know I'm so not like, in, you know. That's so interesting because I know having been an incredibly heavy smoker and having tried to yeah, quit he's many not times, joking. it was very hard one to get to a place where I could finally do that thing and where I could finally say like, why am I doing this? And I did this all myself. It would have been so much easier if something like this, with something like this that was kind of, not forcing the integration like sparking of it, but it. was encouraging the integration of this thing. That's amazing. Right. Just on the same topic, there, that tells me that it's not just the the chemical compounds, but it's this discursive quality that you're talking about where you are, in a sense, talking to yourself that is part of the cure. It's not like, oh, the key yeah. went into the synaptic you know, yes. cleft. And that, and that was it. And it just was like a mechanical thing. Yeah, you have to sort of be in the yeah. process, it seems like. This is why it differs from virtually every single form of psychiatric medication uh -huh. in existence, which worked the way you just described, Stephen. It's, it's, yeah. it's like, yeah, including whether it's addiction medicine, like you know, methadone for you yeah. know, heroin addiction or even nicotine replacement for smoking, yeah. and other, you know, or, you know, SSRIs for, for depression, yeah. all of which yeah. have their place. And I, I always remind people, I'm not looking for sure. to replace those. I want more tools mm -hmm. in the toolbox. There's different mm -hmm. things for everybody, and sometimes maybe even in combination. No, but that's that's so interesting because all of those kinds of things that I tried didn't feel like they were getting at the root of. I mean, instinctively, mm. I knew they weren't, and all they actually did was remind me of smoking. I'd be like, <laughs> I'm going to take a Nicorette thing now, and I'm like, I just want a cigarette, or I do whatever thing that I was doing, whatever chart or whatever. You know, it didn't discourage me. It only kind of kept it in this weird way in the forefront of my head. Right. I wasn't getting any deeper about it. Right. In like. It's it's yeah. at the surface level, which again, yeah. for some people that that helps Could to get them yeah. over the hump. Yeah. But like, yeah. and I've done a whole lot of research in smoking for like 25 years, going back to my grad school years, like a, a nicotine patch trial where, okay, we got 20% of people are successful, you know, versus, you know, 10% on the placebo. Hey, if you're making bets, you'd rather have the 20 than the 10% chance. But the big picture is like, yeah, no matter what group you're in, the odds are it's not going to work in the long run. Now that 20% is very real. And people do quit. People quit with cold turkey every day, which is actually the most common way people still quit. Yeah. Nonetheless, yeah. there's the room for, there's so much room for improvement on any one particular trial with, ex, you know, one uh, one particular quit attempt in existing treatments. It's like, you know, the odds really are stacked against you, not to discourage yeah. people, but, yeah. you know, which is why it's important to keep trying, keep trying no matter yeah. whatever method because eventually, you know, it adds up. The it's a numbers game. Eventually, yeah, it practicing, sticks. You're practicing. You're practicing quitting in a way too. And it's exactly like, is that how you did it, Paul. Yeah. You quit cold turkey. Is that I eventually did. It's how, it? how I did it all the times I did it. But it's like, but but I did it. <laughs> you're cold still turkey, not but done. The last time, no, I'm done. And now I have no desire. But well, I think I worked to this place of what you're talking about getting. But I did it on my own. And it's like getting to something that was more transformative. But it was harder to get there on my own. And it's like, yeah. Um, but yes, I had to kind of practice it to get to cold turkey. And like Mark Twain said, quitting smoking is easy. I've done it a hundred times. <laughs> yeah, right. It's the easiest thing in the world to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, some, really I'm paraphrasing is. something like that. No, no, that's kind of, that's pretty much what you said. It is yeah. the, it, 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 and so I've made this argument in the scientific literature and in lots of talks that it really is more akin to psychotherapy than it is to, okay. to psychiatric medication, even though it's obviously a medication. I mean, it's those radically different things. And, it, you know, it has a dramatic biological effect in the brain. But that's also out of your system with well within a day. And so that direct pharmacology, that kind of quelling of those receptors that is the typical way we treat things, you know, like nicotine addiction, nicotine replacement, they're treating the surface level symptoms. Again, mm -hmm. I don't want to get rid of those. Those mm -hmm. work for right. a lot of people. 
Um, but a big reason why for the people that they don't work for is because they're not getting to the root causes. And yeah. these are psychological disorders. When you really talk to someone about like addiction, it's not just kind of with the you know, the life-destroying drugs like heavy alcoholism, opioid mm -hmm. addiction, cocaine, et cetera, even for tobacco smoking. Smoking. When you yeah. really talk to people that have success, it's it's about the story of their life. Like, why are yes. you here? Yeah. What example are you setting for the people That's in your life? Important. Do you really not want to be around when your kid graduates from college? Yeah. Like I, That, and, and I remember when I got to that place eventually, what I realized, I was asking myself, why am I doing this really? What am I really doing to myself? What am I suppressing? Why am I kind of smothering myself? And once I kind of really looked at that, I started to be able to go, I'm keeping my anger down or whatever. I'm cutting down in this kind of anxieties or whatever. It was like I started realizing I'm smothering myself so I don't have to feel this stuff. This opens my eyes totally because I was wondering, I'm a little, I was a little skeptical, Matthew, about some of the claims about all the things that psychedelics seem to be able to uh, ameliorate, because there's so such a big list. It's like addiction. It's like depression. And I was thinking, how can one or a small set of compounds do that? And now I'm beginning to see it's this narrative story that the, the, the compounds spark, but the narrative story is what makes it about your smoking and not your depression. Mm -hmm. And this person, right. it's their depression and not their anxiety. That's fascinating. It's like you're making the mind and the brain more, and mind is just our description of what we do behaviorally and what the brain is mechanistically coordinating, but it's like you're throwing lubrication into the brain. And and it's very consistent given, consistent with our earlier talk of the CIA, and there's, there's the whole dark side. I mean, it seems very apparent Charles Manson used these, uh, who might mm -hmm. have actually had something to, to do with people. the CIA, frankly. There's some evidence yep. suggesting that, that he might oh. have been... Here we yeah, go. That's purview. a whole new show. <laughs> that, <laughs> a whole new show. There's an amazing book called Chaos that actually goes into I've the evidence for that. I have not read that I book. would highly I recommend it. it. It gets really deep and it really does pull up some Boy, questions. But nonetheless, awesome. <laughs> Charles Manson, you know, clearly used LSD to brainwash people. And so the, one of the most hor sure. horrific things, evil things, like there was a coming race war and they had to kill yeah. Sharon Tate and others. Horrific, which actually ended the 60s. And that's kind of when it shifted. It was very popular, kind of like today, that all of the... The media articles and Life magazine, et cetera, were very positive. The negative views it, of it. And then it shifted from that changed oh, it. Yeah. your kids aren't just gonna be weird and like, you know, go to protest yeah. and put flowers in their hair. Yeah, they might also become homicidal maniacs. Yeah, oh they're gonna God. fucking become yeah, crazy maniacs. <laughs> yeah. So you can do bad or good with it. It's almost like sure. it, it, you make a mold sure. more pliable. You take a plastic and you heat it up and now it's more pliable. Uh, Depends on sure. who's what artist hands you put that into. You can make sure. a monstrosity or you could make a beautiful work of art. Sure. Did the CIA use this stuff in like the remote viewing stuff or was the remote viewing stuff a whole different thing? They weren't dosing these people with stuff, were they? Or were they? So the real answer to this is we wouldn't really even know because yeah. of the secrecy. And even yeah. when MKUltra, through the Freedom of Information Act, which is the program describing the many decades long program, the CIA for experimenting with different drugs to control the mind and using interrogation agents and things like, could we drop a, a bomb full of this stuff on enemy soldiers? Could we spike the the, right. the drink of a foreign wow. leader to make them go crazy Castro. in public? Can we like stick it in Castro's exactly, cigars? Exactly, exactly. Like, yeah. I might be at the limits of my knowledge whether there's a known association. It was 
similar folks that yeah, were studying the same things like remote yes. viewing and the psychedelic program. Yes. But this raises something I want to ask, and I don't want to go too far down this road because it's a different thing. But it's interesting because I became very uh, interested in flotation tanks and sensory deprivation tanks. Yeah. And actually, those were developed by that guy, John Lilly. Actually, the Department of Defense, if I'm right, wanted to see about... Uh, the effects of sensory deprivation as an interrogation technique. It was it's the dolphin, dolphin guy. guy. Yeah, it's the dolphin guy. If you cut everybody's senses off, they're going to freak out. And instead, what he found was the opposite thing was happening. That you got these similar effects yes. to what it sounds like, like with spiritual, very well, much yeah, like psychedelics. Actually, could go very way. similar. He was also dropping tons of acid, but and ketamine was his big thing. He actually he thought he was exactly. in communication with alien intelligence. Yes. That was awesome. and he thought dolphins were alien intelligence. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is that even without all that stuff, doing the tank quite a bit, which I used to do it a lot, I remembered doing psychedelics and hadn't done them in a while. There was a lot of similar stuff going on. Is there similar stuff going on? Because you talk about closing, you know, cutting everything off. The brain is going to start acting out maybe the same way it does right. on some of these other things? There's reason to, descriptively, there's absolutely similarity. And even mechanistically, in terms of the neuroscience, even though we're very much in our infancy, there's reasons to think there's similarity. Like one of the the le leading theories about how psychedelics are working, and there's probably multiple mechanisms, so it's probably far more complex than this, but one of the ways is that it's related to what's so-called thalamic gating, the idea that the, mm. the normal filter in the brain that sort of um, coordinates what's coming from the inside and outside and what's directing mm -hmm. the flow of information within the brain, that that's radically altered, that gating is altered such that so much of what you are is going on in the inside is perceived as if it's normally coming from the outside. Yes. So you have this experience yes. of the inner world. That's so And that's true. exactly like with sensory deprivation, which clearly there's there has to be something like that going on yeah. in the sense that and I've done sensory deprivation myself. It seems like you fill yeah. in the blanks and it might totally. take it a half hour, an hour to really start getting those effects. Give yourself the two hour. Yeah, you yeah. have to have time. I started doing it for at least three hours. But that realization, that sense, that mad monkey of the mind that the, the Zen monks talk about, it is entirely happening inside of you. Right. This is something that uh, Paul and I have talked a lot about, which is the imagination. And it, it's an area of my own research. And I feel like... One of the things you're describing, Matthew, is the idea that you might you take like these great icons of the imagination, the Walt Disney's, the Hayao Miyazaki's, or whatever. They're able to take stuff that ordinar ordinarily you wouldn't put together, and they're just able to grab stuff from the unconscious and then just like stick it together. And I feel like if you have these kind of elaborate moments, either in a sensory deprivation tank or on mm -hmm. a substance. It might actually just break your imagination open, like you get a more flexible, fluid kind of cognition. Does this sound right to you? It, it does. And in fact, there was some emerging early research with interest in this back in the 60s, but that really isn't one of the areas that's been fully picked up yet. I mean, you just step back and you look at the number of artists that, I mean, I always right. remind people there's like be, be, the Beatles before and after acid. I mean, that's a, yeah. that's a difference. And it's not a clean experiment. Yeah. There was a lot going on in the world, but, yeah. you know, really, you listen to that, um, you know, what? Uh, uh, Revolver. It, I was thinking of Revolver, yeah. the last Revolver. song on Revolver. Whoa. I mean, I remember Bob Weir of the Dead in an interview said that when he heard that, because they were wondering, had the Beatles turn on and he heard that, is it Tomorrow <laughs> Never Dies or what's the last song on Revolver? I might be getting the name mixed up. Tomorrow never knows. Tomorrow never knows. Yes. Thanks, yeah. Stephen. And he says, oh yeah, they've turned on. 
Yeah, they turned <laughs> yeah, on. They Absolutely, turned on. no sure. question. For sure. And the experience in that tank is really extraordinary. Did you ever sleep in it? You're asleep a lot, I think. I think they call it beta sleep. It's almost like hypnagogic stuff. You know what I mean? Uh, it's like you're in, in this between, kind of, like Yeah, you're in yeah. this half state. And I mean, you have those experiences of thinking you're going to die. I mean, there's, there's times in there when I've jolted away because I'm thinking my breath gets so minimal. It's a different experience than existentially like, oh my God, I'm going to die. Although you have feelings sort of like that. Your breath gets so minimal, you think you're going to stop breathing and you freak out. And then out. you get like wow. salt water in your eye because yeah. you're floating. <laughs> you get a little salt water. What about the stoned oh, ape? the stoned ape. Yeah, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask about the yeah. stoned Terrence ape. Terrence McKenna's uh, theory. So, you know, and as a caveat, he didn't. He didn't. He wasn't a scientist. He was a a bard, philosopher, orator, yeah. extraordinaire. I've listened to yeah. countless hours of him, especially yeah, early so in my I. work with psychedelics. <laughs> so, with that caveat, his, the idea was that psilocybin mushrooms played a role in human evolution through a, a few different mechanisms. That they would find them in cow patties, you know, cow dung, and which is where you know, uh, many of these species of psilocybin-containing mushrooms will grow out of. And in the uh, 1960s, the thing was acid, and anyone that did mushrooms, you know, had gone to Oaxaca, Mexico, sort of like ayahuasca wasn't in the 90s. They may have had a friend of a friend that went to the mountains of Mexico. But um, psilocybin mushrooms were discovered several years later, and more in the 70s, like all these students in Oregon and Georgia and Florida realize, oh my God, this stuff is growing all over these <laughs> yeah. cow fields surrounding these universities. That's awesome. And so, so yeah, yeah. So his idea was that early hominids were were picking the eating these mushrooms, and there is evidence that you know just studying indigenous societies around the planet, they try everything, and, and oh. it's the, the classic method of. Yeah, the shaman. You try a tiny right. little bit, I mean, even before the perhaps we don't even really know when shamans first started, but just in terms of look, foraging for food, you try a little bit of the thing, because the primary mm -hmm. thing is looking for food, and not mm -hmm. even before people were even looking for altered states, I and mean, who knows where that when that came about, that was probably ancient, but they would have stumbled upon it looking for food. Sure. And mm -hmm. so you try a little bit, and you wait a while, if you don't die, then... <laughs> And if your buddies see you die, they don't try that. And if you yeah, don't yeah. die, you can try some more and then you eat a little more. And so that's actually how the the famed psychedelic chemist, uh, Sasha Shulgin, developed hundreds of compounds, many of which were psychedelic, tweaking the mescaline molecule, tweaking the psilocybin and the basic structure underlying LSD and psilocybin tryptamine molecule. So Trying all these different variations of it and right. getting different results. But Amazing. the stoned ape theory was that when the hominids would have been looking for this stuff as food, that they discovered these effects and that the ones that tried them were more likely to survive through natural selection, you know, the ones that were more likely to survive and procreate. It kickstarts consciousness as we know it, like modern consciousness. His, it kickstarts kind of an ability to, what? You're thinking of like the monolith in 2001. Well, I am. Right? I mean, like, yeah, it is right. like the monolith in 2001. <laughs> but it's like, but is that the idea that, yeah. Fascinating. But, but he had very, actually more specific ideas that that were, were very much, you know, tied to increased likelihood of survival and reproduction. So this is where I'm reminded he's not a scientist. That people would, they'd, they'd trip their balls off and they'd have giant orgies. And it would just make people <laughs> oh. have sex more. That was ah. a major part of what he was saying. 
And, oh, and that's interesting. That makes sense because you. I thought it was like, oh, your mind is open and then you pass that down. But you can't do that. That's Lamarckian evolution. There's no way to get that in the DNA. Well, although things are more complex these days because we realize there was a threat of truth to Lamarckian evolution. Even oh, though it was epigenetics. Dismissed. Exactly. It was dismissed okay. when I was in uh, college. Meaning that psychological traits or sort of personality what, traits or behavioral traits? It could be theoretically. Traits? What genes are actually expressed within the genome, could, yeah. there's, there can be an inheritance of that. But another factor that Terrence speculated was at play was based on some early research in the 60s that at least at a certain dose that people would have increased visual acuity. They'd be more likely to detect ah. lines that are parallel and this type of thing. And that he he thought that might, you know, with the way our early ancestors survived, you'd be more likely to throw that spear, you know, more oh. accurately. Again, it would be interesting to do more research on on yeah. that. You I wouldn't put my bets on it. And, you could dose some students and give them a javelin and see how they <laughs> see how they do. See if they can hit the <laughs> so I get that past the ethics board at the university. <laughs> We're just going to get a couple, <laughs> yeah, some bunch of undergrads. Just give them take some them spears. The- and, <laughs> <laughs> totally. oh dear, I was reminded that there was this guy. Um, Robert Graves. He wrote the I Claudius books. He wrote, he was this kind classicist, of poet, right? British poet and classicist who had a whole theory that basically in the in the classical world, all of these notions of ambrosia, food of the gods, soma and in, in, in India and in, yes. in, in Hindu culture, right. and in all of these things, he, what they were really talking about was magic mushrooms. And that and that a lot of uh poetry and art and philosophy yeah. were pushed along by people ingesting right. the, these things. The oracles and so forth. Yeah, yeah, so that it was the oracles and all that kind of stuff, which is more shamanistic, I suppose. There is some evidence uh, for that. And I think it's 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 very likely that a psychoactive substance was uh, underlying soma. I mean, this spanned over yeah. centuries and across, you know, even into Iran, uh, Persia, India. But the, there's a lot of debate over what that psychoactive substance was. And it may, in fact, have mm-hmm. actually shifted over the years. And even ephedra, which is an amphetamine-like compound from plants, was popular in the 90s when I, when I yeah. got into bodybuilding in college. Yeah, everyone would take the stackers, yeah. you know. It'd, <laughs> it'd be very, like, it's very amphetamine-like. Yes. <laughs> but um, that, combined with cannabis, or psilocybin mushrooms, but also amanita mushrooms, which are not of the classic psychedelic variety, but more of a deliriant variety, Yes, because he was because t- I remember him talking about the berserk warriors in Scandinavia oh. yes. of the Vikings Berserkers. that they thought that they were taking the amanita right. mushroom. But I was like, would it make you violent? In terms of fight or flight, which is when you really get someone jacked up, that's they tend to go one of the two directions. Yeah. It tends to be more yeah. of the flight with classic psychedelics, as probably most police officers would right. tell you. But typically, yeah. the person is like you know a scared animal if if they are. are you know, really freaked out rather than going on the attack. Again, there are exceptions, but the Amanita uh, muscaria, and there's far less research on those compounds, the psychoactive compounds at, at very high doses that underlie ibotenic acid and musamol and others. Um, but they, they are more of a, a, delirient is the right term. And some people question whether it should, they should even be considered, even broadly speaking, psychedelic, but they're very uh-huh. conscious altering uh, of a sort. I mean, in some sense, more like alcohol, but definitely more than alcohol for sure. Some people may have heard of things like Jimson weed and Datura uh-huh. compounds that can be called broadly speaking 
psychedelic. I think probably hallucinogen is a better term. And that's an interesting question that I think Steve and I both had was like, at what, when is it a hallucinogen and what's the difference and what is giving you this kind of, wow, the walls are moving a little bit and I feel like I love everybody and like, oh my God, there's a green goblin coming yeah. out, of, out of my coffee that's, that's going to bite my head. Yeah. Kind of. The caveat is if you ask 10 scientists, you're going to get 10 different answers because of the okay. nomenclature or the naming system we use for these things. There's disagreements. I mean, there was even a recent paper that I disagree with that said we should only use the term psychedelic for the so-called classic psychedelic. So like LSD, magic mushrooms, mescaline, which is in peyote and other cacti, DMT, mm -hmm. which is in ayahuasca. They work in one specific way. There's variation on other receptors, but their primary way of working is activating what's called the serotonin 2A receptor, a particular type of serotonin receptor in the brain. And then you have all these other compounds, ketamine, it affects the NMDA, uh, receptor mm -hmm. system in the brain. And you have this whole MDMA actually mm -hmm. doesn't activate that subtype of serotonin receptor, but it, as its primary action, but it releases natural uh -huh. serotonin at an extraordinary rate. So that's an, yet another mechanism. So there's and all DMT? of these. And DMT is a classic psychedelic. So it's like okay, LSD, so psilocybin. Okay. But when it's smoked, which is not possible with some of these other compounds, it kind of is qualitatively different because it, it it hits you like a freight train. It's very common for people to report entity contact. And that's when we're talking on little blue dudes, little blue guys or something. Right, like. where and you're that, actually- and that's, and that's a hallucination. That's what we're now saying. Yes, and typically what you get from these classic psychedelics with most of the methods of use of them, even really high doses of LSD or psilocybin, you don't get what psychiatrists would consider actual hallucinations. You call them- they're, they're perceptual illusions, they're uh -huh. distortions, even pseudo-hallucinations. But for a real hallucination, you actually have to yeah. believe that the thing is real. And that's rare, right? With mushrooms and with LSD, but with smoked DMT, it becomes more likely. Now, some people have the you know that reaction and still may in real time, and good luck having them answer in real time. <laughs> But, it, you know, they may or may not believe these things are real. Some people, many people come out believing, for better or worse, that there is actually some, in, like, maybe these are coming from another dimension. Wow. I can say that when I was doing the tank, the, I was told that some of the effects of it were closer to the DMT than they were other things. Light effects, senses that there are other things in the tank with you, things like that. Like and creatures. Those things, yeah, and those things did happen, actually. The light effect thing, is that a DMT thing? But don't they call it the near-death drug? I'm getting us off into a whole other thing here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the caveat sorry. is that there's such variation across these experiences. There's, you know, there's not a, an yeah. easy answer, but those are very DMT-like effects, you know, many of those. Not to say they're not possible with other the other drugs, yes. but just being completely immersed in another reality. And so that's the thing. If you're on high doses of psilocybin or LSD and wear that eye shade, you can experience that type of stuff internally. Uh -huh. And that's, in fact, getting back to our earlier conversation, a part of that deep immersion that you may... Now, if, if you were on that same dose and you were just looking at your friends, looking at the wall, looking at the Grateful Dead album, whatever, you know, you, you're still tethered to reality. Whereas yeah. with mm -hmm. if you're in the in the in the float tank, the tank, or if you just smoke three giant hits of DMT out of the bong, <laughs> then it's like yeah, like good luck tethering to anything. I mean, you are right. just immersed in this yes. world that is. Yes. you're going down these rabbit holes of where light and meaning are interacting, yeah. and entities are popping out and breaking the laws of physics. All subjectively, you know, again, who knows scientifically about what is. The reality, the you know, the the metaphysical, you know, reality of what's uh -huh. going on there, but you really get untethered. 
Can I ask, uh, well, two things. That really makes me wonder about the all the paranormal phenomena that Paul and I are sort of interested in, which includes things like UFOs and and even like- Bigfoot, the tra- Bigfoot. You know, There's Bigfoot. a Matthew Johnson <laughs> Bigfoot researcher I've been confused with and I've gotten phone calls, but anyway. He's from Oregon and I did my degree, my <laughs> undergrad in Oregon. Anyway. He's got casts oh and God. shit in his office. Um, no, I, what I was going to say is Paul is like a little more of a believer and I'm more of a skeptic, but I'm thinking maybe there's a naturalistic explanation for the commonality mm. of the hallucinations. Like mm. you see a certain kind of entity and it comes and it's generally friendly. But the question I actually had for you was in a different direction. And that was, is is like big pharma looking at your research and thinking like, here we go, we can make some compounds as soon as sure. the government, you know, <laughs> greenlights this shit and we are going to sell this to the Americans I'm just wondering, is this going to be big business? And are, have you? do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, there's actually billions of dollars of investment in psychedelic startups over the last several years. And this has more to do with the kind of nature of mental health treatments where big pharma has kind of abandoned over the last several decades because um, it's a very high-risk enterprise. You, you, you sink millions and millions into the development, and then the compound gets thrown out at the last stage. So the way it typically happens, and again, not just psychedelics, but but psychiatric drugs in general, mental health drugs, typically that's more now the domain of startups and and smaller pharmaceutical companies. Then if they get past the earlier stages of development and it looks like they're onto something, then big uh, pharma comes in and buys them up in. and you know buys the rights to that. So it's important that it be done ethically and safely. I've even served as a consultant for a number of those companies. I've actually turned down far more companies that have asked me to get involved. Mm. There are some people I think are at the fringe of of the psychedelic movement, if you want to call it that, you know, are kind of waiting for like capitalism to go away. And like, I don't know, my take is we've tried yeah. that. And like, it's, <laughs> it's been, not going to go away. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. millions of failing. people dead <laughs> as a result of its yeah. failure. But, yeah. but nonetheless, <laughs> we have to have well a well-regulated market. There hasn't been a single, you know, drug that's been approved by the FDA that has purely been supported and maintained on market by a nonprofit. I've actually, I'm a big fan. I've done some work to support a, a couple of those folks that are doing that with with psychedelics maps. So there's another group called USONA that I've I, I've helped over the years that's developing psilocybin for depression. Those are noble and good experiments that, and even if they're successful, which I think they will be, they're not going to come anywhere close to meeting the demand of interest in these. So, and typically the folks involved with those efforts are of the same opinion. And they want, you know, as long as people are doing ethical, good work to have for-profit businesses, which again, for better or worse, whether you like it or not, the way that the drugs yeah. get to get to sure. market in our system. Yeah, so yeah. I, you know, I want to get this stuff in the hands of patients if, if it passes the appropriate FDA trials. And there is a pathway where probably just a year or two away from MDMA being approved for PTSD and maybe wow, a couple wow. of years more for de- psilocybin being approved for depression treatment. So yeah, MDMA has gone through two phase three trials, which is that final phase of trial that you need to potentially meet FDA approval. So FDA is going to be considering whether or not it's going to be approved, you know, within the next year or two. So that seems to be particularly effective in PTSD. Yeah. Yeah. Those results are absolutely remarkable. You you see very large reductions in PTSD symptoms in the people on average. Nothing works for everybody, but compared to what's out there, like, uh, uh, a big majority of people do see substantial benefit, and on average, that benefit is very large. I mean, the benefit's so large that a, a majority of people are not meeting criteria for even having the disorder anymore. 
Which wow. isn't to say that the underlying issues are completely gone and never present, yeah. but they, again, it's like, are, is it meeting Holy the criteria cow. of really having that 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 incredible disruptive effect on someone's life to it, to where it qualifies as a disorder? And a similar pattern is being seen with psilocybin for depression. You know, what I'm concerned about is like, is this going to be you know done ethically and safely? Are the you know the companies and the the organizations involved going to adhere to the safety standards? I published a, a number of papers on just that, the risks and the safeguards, and how you do this without hurting people. But then I'm also concerned about some things like the development of cults and other things. I mean, mm -hmm. you really you're going to get doctors yeah. that you know they're running their sessions uh, totally. on a Saturday they night with it. a bunch of folks and they're having totally sex with half it. of them. This well, type I mean, of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look what's happened with the sort of the ayahuasca thing got sort of out of control, hasn't it? I mean, it's like right. now it's just like, yeah, I'm going, I'm going to somebody's apartment. They've got a shaman coming by. Everyone calls himself a shaman. And yeah. yeah and, but there's a whole landscape there. I've known people, oh gosh, a number of vets that have gone down to Peru and elsewhere that it's it's profoundly helped their life, you know. I bet. And then there's I cases bet. where women have been sexually assaulted. That's one of the main reasons that it's like a lot of the vets that are really strongly pushing for this work, you know, say, you know, why do we have to go to a third world country? Like nothing against right. those countries, but like, sure, this is the United States of America, yeah. damn it. We are at the leading edge of, of medicine and this should be available here if it passes the appropriate trials. And I think about like Soma in Hindu Upanishads and in Buddhism, and these traditions are about sort of expanding the mind and consciousness. And I just wondered if there were, sort of cultural Christian uh, prohibition against like losing yourself because the theology doesn't really think that's the valuable thing so much. I, I'm, I'm totally speculating. Well, it. I mean, there's certainly ways of losing yourself in Christianity, but not in- You're right. Yeah, but, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, a, it's a really a minority view. The mystical tradition yeah. is a minority view. Right, right. But it may be at the, at the origin of Christianity. So obviously Christianity is a broad spectrum, but a, a friend of mine, Brian Murarescu, has written this really phenomenally interesting book, The Immortality Key, cataloging both the use of what was likely an LSD-like ergot derivative at the heart of this Greek cultural phenomenon, this yearly use of this sacrament called the, the, the Rites of Ulysses that went on for hundreds of years, hundreds, wow. many hundreds of years that all of the great Socrates and the rest partake. And you uh -huh. read about how they describe this and it sounds right. like a psychedelic, like dying yeah. before you die and that once uh -huh. someone, they're transformed forever and what they sure. experience is indescribable. He also covers in that book the early Christianity. Of course, that's, you know, the Greeks laid the foundation for what became essentially the Western world and the roots of Christianity and many yeah. other things. Yeah, yeah. And not to mention the university system and basically yeah, so many, of, and yeah, democracy. Um, Foundational, right, yeah. yeah. But then early Christianity, some really intriguing research suggesting that psychoactive substances, maybe of different varieties, but strong hallucinogenic or psychedelic substances were at the heart of early Christianity, that it was mainly the, the women, the followers of the early Christian church who were basically the caretakers, that the, that the sacrament, that the, the Eucharist was a psych, actually a psychoactive. I was saying that about, uh, about Robert Graves. Yeah, he was talking about how the Dionysian cult, Dionysus, which was a fem mostly female, I think. And there's this play, the Bacchae, which is all about these uh, Bacchus kind of, uh, Dionysus causes this chaos. But um, 
he had a similar thing that essentially, and it was some sort of linguistic game he was playing where he was relating the words and names and I don't know, Greek, and I couldn't follow a lot of it, but actually it was a mushroom cult. And that this sort of idea, because in the Bacchae and in, in a lot of the sort of uh, imaginative literature and stuff about Dionysus, there's this kind of ripping things apart and devouring them as you get into this ecstatic state. Yeah. And that the whole thing was a mushroom thing, that people were ripping mushrooms up and eating them. Well, Brian like covers that. this territory and, and even makes the point that the roots for the uh, of the traditions of Jesus and the reason that the early Christians adopted that is because many of those cultures had been followers of, of Dionysus uh, and that uh-huh. like happens when there's countless times where a new culture, like when the Christians came into the it, to the Western world, where a lot of what you see now, even in, even in the Maria Sabina's mush, psilocybin mushroom use in Mexico, which is discovered in the, the 1950s by Gordon Wass, and these are hybrid religions between Christianity, they're called syncretic religions. It's yeah. typically the combination of the new system, the new, where the invaders impose, or however, the, you know, yeah. typically invaders impose a new religion, but that becomes a hybrid with the existing mm-hmm. cultures. And so basically Dionysus became Jesus, essentially, in terms uh-huh, of the tradition. Uh-huh. So they sort of latched on to the similar stories and, and similar traditions. Yeah, because there is this sort of eating the body of the God thing. That, yeah. Then there's a, isn't there a, a South, in the Southwest, isn't there a Christian peyote church? That, well, the yeah. Native American churches. Yeah, has, that's what I mean. And there's a. Is that the Carlos Castaneda stuff? It, no, I uh, think it's, a, I think it's, a, I think it's what you were just talking about. It's a mix of the Christian and the peyote. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Which is, it, again, very common to bring in those roots and. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, Color Castanetas, I read those books back in College of Fascinating, but it had, I have to you know, point out to say that he's been torn to shreds in terms <laughs> of- super debunked, yeah. <laughs> you want to distance yourself. Yeah, you know, a lot of folks thinking he made up like a whole lot of it. Um, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, it was just too bad. But it's, it, it's bad, absolutely but it's, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have used a lot of your time here. And we you've been really very generous, have, man. Uh, with us, we covered so, a lot of ground, been awesome, too. really fun. Yeah. Oh, Fantastic. I, I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. Thank you very yeah, much. Thank you, Matthew. Spooky, thank you spooky blue. Spooky blue, <laughs> that's me. Spooky <laughs> blue. Really a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you very yeah, much. Thanks, Matthew. fellas. Oh, that was a trip, right, Steve? <laughs> that was a trip. A trip. I feel my doors smoke. of perception wide open. Cleansed. Clear. Cleansed. Me too. I feel, I feel super clarified. Dr. Johnson. Yeah, guy, he was awesome. That guy knows his cow, shit. That guy is awesome. Yeah. Cool guy, but also the dude knows, I think the dude knows everything. Yeah, he's like, uh, he he's very steeped in the science and the therapeutic applications of psychedelics, but also he knows his paranormal weirdness too. He knows his paranormal weirdness. He can get into the weird territory. Something tells me Dr. J, maybe he's hitting his own medicine a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, the guy is really unbelievable and an awesome awesome. guy too. Yeah. And he gets into the more strange, we we talk about the stoned ape hypothesis and all kinds of stuff. Uh, That guy is something else. Yes. Wag on weirdos. Chinwag is a production of Treefort Media and Touchy Feely Films. Hosted and executive produced by Paul Giamatti and Stephen Asma. Executive producers for Treefort are Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman. Dan Carey is executive producer for Touchy Feely. Our series producer is Rachel Whitley Bernstein. Our associate producer is Andrew Miller. 
Original theme music by Luke Topp, with additional music by Via Mardot. Oscar Guido is our executive in charge of production. Tom Monahan is head of audio for Treefort. Animation created by Alex Sokol. Audio production, supervision, and editing by Maxwell Carney. Additional audio assistance and mixing by Jeff Neal. With additional production management from Renee Levesque. Clara Wong is Celestial Empress of Benevolent Knowledge. Lastly, for more information, go to chinwagpod.fm and find us on Instagram or TikTok at chinwagpod or on Twitter at chinwag underscore pod. Thank you.